I V M. Welcome to the Pragati Podcast. I am your host Pavan Shrinath. We found out last week that over half our listeners started listening to podcasts less than a year ago. If you are looking for more great shows to listen to, you should definitely check out the IVM Podcast Network. There are great new episodes out this week on IVM. Amit Verma speaks to Amit Chandra on the seen and the unseen on how public education is a big fraud in India. IVM also has great shows on tech and startups, geek culture, travel, the queer community, cyber safety and a whole lot more. Check them out today on ivmpodcast.com, the IVM podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts from. Why did Trump sign a nuclear deal with North Korea while he was bailing out of a deal with Iran? Is it just Trump being Trump or is there more to this story? all this and more coming up on this episode of the pragati podcast in 1961 stanley kubrick set out to make a thriller on a nuclear accident during the cold war as he started doing the research he started encountering absurd and paradoxical ideas like the balance of terror and mutually assured destruction that define nuclear warfare Soon he realized that a serious film would be impossible on the subject and he set out writing a nightmare comedy and thus was born Dr Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb which came out in 1964 In this episode we confine ourselves to something that is hopefully a little less absurd Amaya Nayak joins us to discuss how the US and other countries signed a deal with Iran so that Iran stopped pursuing nuclear weapons in exchange for dropping sanctions against the country. We discuss why Trump wants to bail on the Iran deal while trying to sign another such deal with North Korea. This was a long discussion which we have broken into two episodes. In today's episode, Amaya discusses the ins and outs of the Iran deal and why Trump wants to back out of something that Obama signed. Next week, we shall discuss North Korea and also a little bit on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, the NPT, which is about 50 years old today. A few times I mistakenly refer to the NPT as the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty rather than the Non-Proliferation Treaty that it is. Amaya tells me that this is a Freudian slip given my personal dislike of the treaty. Now, Hamsini has decided to launch a full investigation into the matter. Amaya Nayak is a lawyer and a policy analyst and a graduate of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Note that this is not the Fletcher School of Public Policy. as i mistakenly said last time when we were when i was introducing amaya fletcher alumni mia maxima kalpa amaya has worked as a speech writer at the indian ministry of human resource development and as a researcher with think tanks in boston and new york and as also as a freelance editor and an intervention design consultant he currently manages policy research and partnerships for tata sons in mumbai we'll be back with amaya after this short break Welcome to another week on IVM. It's been a great week and if you aren't following us on social media please do. We're IVM podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. On Geek Freak this week Tejas and Dinkar discuss their favorite movie soundtracks. On the scene in the unseen Amit Verma talks to researcher and activist Amit Chandra and they dissect India's education sector. On Cyrus says we have writer and director Anand Sivakumar who's hosting a great new show for us called Crock Tales as well. Anand and Cyrus talk about how Anand journeyed from an engineer to a full-time writer. On Simplified Narendra Chak and Shrikant go to the root of the word assassin and twisted an interesting history behind it. 
This week on Shunyan, we're joined by Sanjay Nath, who is the co-founder and managing partner at Bloom Ventures. We have a really interesting conversation about investing on Marbles Lost and Founds. Then, in Avanti, talk to psychotherapist Alicia Halani. And also, this week marks the 50th episode of the Prakriti Podcast. Hosts Hamsini Hariharan and Pawan Shrinath sit down to talk about the long, strange trip has been, and also round up some of the recent news. And with that, I'm going to take you on to your shows. And we are back. Hi, Amaya. Welcome back to the Prakriti Podcast. Hi, Pawan. Good to be here. Amaya. You've had uh, Trump doing very interesting things with nuclear policies this year, right? You've had uh, one Trump renege on the deal with Iran that was made by the Obama administration. And at the same time, you've had Trump signing a new deal with North Korea. Is this just Trump being Trump? Is that a sufficient explanation or is there something more happening right now? I also want you to remember before you start, Amaya, that it's been... 50 years since the nuclear non-proliferation treaty has been signed right so is this also an indication of the larger structural problems with nuclear policy right yeah so in fact the nuclear non-proliferation treaty the npt was signed in july 1968 so we're in the golden jubilee month as it were uh wow when it comes to north korea and iran there's definitely very different things going on structurally uh, which is not to say that there's not a lot of trump being trump in there uh, which one do you want to go with first why don't we start with iran amaya because uh, i think iran matters a lot more to india as well right and then we'll get to north korea which seems uh, more like popcorn material to me honestly but you can educate me otherwise Yeah so I would I would contest that on North Korea but uh it'll take a step back right so to be precise Trump is trying to renege on the Iran deal it's not as easy as he thinks either uh so you know everyone we say Iran deal technically this is the joint comprehensive plan of action on Iran or the JCPOA which is what you'll see in all of the the nordior discussion forums and like the nuclear policy wonk forums this was signed in june 2015 between iran the five permanent members of the un so us uk france russia china as well as germany so you'll also sometimes hear it called the eu plus 3 and iran and uh, the you know the short version of it is that anyone who works in the nuclear policy and disarmament space will tell you that this was the most comprehensive most stringent and thus far most effective disarmament deal that has been signed in modern history okay okay so if it was such a great deal right the criticism against the iran nuclear deal is not new even when it was signed there were a lot of experts particularly american policy makers who found fault with it right yeah found fault is a bit of an understatement there was a group of us senators led by i think tom cotton of arizona who wrote a letter while the deal was being negotiated to the iranian foreign minister jawad zarif who was the lead negotiator on the iranian side uh, and they wrote him a letter saying you may not be familiar with the workings of the us political system but you should know that any deal that the president signs we the republicans in senate will not ratify 
if it's not ratified it can be overturned by the next president at the stroke of a pen and so if the next president happens to be a republican then any deal that you sign is just not worth the paper that it's that it's printed on uh which is really so there is a sort of premonition of what was going to come right even before uh the current government came into power there is at least a there is at least a statement of intention or a statement of what the republican critics of the deal would want to happen uh they might have overplayed their hand you know i'll get to this but uh, obama anticipated them on this right but to your to your question to your point there clearly was criticism of the deal uh especially from republican and conservative politicians and analysts in the us and uh, especially from israel uh the thing to keep in mind here and you know i had actually written an op-ed about this at the time like in 2015 when the deal was signed and uh, emotions were running very high around like this is a great groundbreaking deal and like this is a disaster we're selling out to iran uh I'd written then that it helps to distinguish between limitations and criticisms, right? So even in economics you're familiar with this concept, right? If you put forward a theory, the theory is about some set of phenomena. There are other things that also happen which it doesn't address, and that's a limitation of the theory. It's only limited to one set of things. Then there's a criticism which is no, you're telling me how one thing is going to work. and actually it doesn't work that way you're wrong about it and so a lot of the criticism even in 2015 even now the stuff that trump has invoked to actually stop complying with the deal a lot of it is in the limitation space it's not actually a criticism because the deal was designed to limit iran to a civilian nuclear program and to dismantle whatever nuclear weapons infrastructure they'd built up so this means that they declare their facilities their facilities are inspected then they dismantle their centrifuges and plants they ship the highly enriched uranium that they have out of the country and like all of these each of these steps is inspected and verified all of that has been done all of the nuclear limitation and disarmament stuff is on track and the international atomic energy agency the iaea the people who inspect this have been certifying regularly that it's been happening amaya so are you saying that effectively after this deal has been signed iran has been denuclearized yeah so the concept that we need to deal with here is called nuclear breakout okay which is a measure of how far away a country is from actually having a usable nuclear weapon Okay so where was Iran sort of before the deal was signed what what do most people think uh so the people who were like really alarmist were saying that Iran was basically at nuclear breakout right okay uh that's probably a little overstated because to get there you have to have a nuclear weapon you have to have missile systems and you have to have the technological capacity of putting these things together which basically means designing and crafting the nuclear warhead in a way that it fits onto the missiles that you have uh best estimate is that iran was 2 to 3 months away from having a functioning nuclear warhead 
uh, it's less clear how close they were to being able to fit it onto a missile. But so and perhaps also less close to when they'd actually be able to test this device, right? Because conducting a nuclear test will go a long way in sort of proving your ability. Yeah, so I mean, it's debatable whether Iran would ever actually choose to test, right? Uh, Fair enough. In like, this is a case where, like, if your goal is to negotiate based on the progress of your nuclear weapons program, you don't actually need to test, right? There's a lot of things, especially today, there's a lot of things that can be done with simulations rather than actual physical testing. Okay. So just to recap, Iran was quite close to having nuclear weapons. And some people said that they all but had it. And uh, you're saying now that most people believe that uh, Iran has got rid of many of these abilities uh, quite significantly. And uh, so apart from Trump being Trump, uh, what is the genuine concern with the Iranian nuclear program and uh, why do people want to uh, renege on this uh, grand deal? Look, it's not most people believe, right? Everybody, and it's, it's not even believes. There are inspectors. They are checking. They are verified. Fair enough. Fair enough. So it's verified that all this stuff is out. So what's keeping certain Americans angry? And I'm talking about people other than Trump as well. Yeah, uh, it's not the nuclear program. Iran is certifiably further from nuclear breakout than they were before. And so this is what I was saying about mixing up limitations and criticisms, right? If your concern is, does this deal take Iran further away from nuclear breakout, which it was for people who are focused on disarmament policy, you're quite happy because it's done that. If your concern is, how do we limit the influence of Iran in the Middle East or how do we keep Iran from being a hostile or threatening actor to regimes in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, uh, then the deal does nothing of that order, right? And if anything, the fact that sanctions are lifted under the deal and the Iranian economy recovers, and also that Iran like regains a measure of legitimacy and standing in the global diplomatic arena, all of that makes it easier for Iran to pursue its interests which may run counter to Saudi interests, which may run counter to Israeli interests. And so the criticism, again, and now let me change that phrase, right? What people were unhappy about was that the deal was limited to the nuclear program and did not do anything about what they think of as Iran's bad behavior in the Middle East. So basically, they wanted the deal to stop Iran from being Iran and, you know, play along with American interests or whatever other sort of global uh, interests. Right. They wanted a more docile and compliant Iran. Yes. Ah, okay. Gotcha. So um, clearly Iran is not docile, right? And there's more than enough evidence for that too. They are doing things um, uh, against Saudi interests. They are sort of helping rebels, uh, I think in Yemen, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, so, so they are doing quite a bit in the region, right? Yeah, yeah. So war in Yemen, uh, arguably far more provoked and worsened and sustained by the the Saudi slash GCC side than Iran. But yes, Iran is involved, uh, hugely involved in Syria, propping up the Assad regime. There are Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, IRGC, which is like the both the elite and the expeditionary forces of the Iranian military, heavily involved in Syria. Uh, the Iranian-backed Hezbollah, which is a 
I mean, it's a designated terrorist group, but it's also part of the government in Lebanon, and they have been for a while. And there's an increasing amount of Iranian influence in Iraqi politics as well. Uh, Muqtada al-Sadr did really well in the last round of Iraqi elections, and he's known to have Iranian contacts so all across the region, absolutely. Okay, but it also matters as to what the objective was, right? I mean, by virtue of the fact that this was the Iran nuclear deal, you can play devil's advocate and argue that you cannot maybe have a single uh, deal that will solve all um, of U.S.'s problems with Iran's foreign policy, um, just uh, in terms of uh, what instruments you have, uh, a single deal will not be able to figure all of this, right? I mean, uh, generally we say sticks and carrots are uh, great uh, when we're looking at uh, instruments of foreign policy. So you just can't have one uh, instrument that will fulfill all of your foreign policy goals. This is exactly what Obama argued, right? Obama clearly made a trade-off and said, I will ignore Iran's regional ambitions for now in exchange for getting this nuclear deal because the most pressing and urgent part of this problem is actually nuclear breakout Iran scenario because that will throw the Middle East into chaos. Um, And so first we have to restrain their influence by not letting them get a nuclear weapon. And then we can deal with everything else. And uh, Obama, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly also made the argument that, look, the the process of negotiating this deal and actually setting up this sort of arrangement is creating a new channel and repertoire of diplomacy between us. And as US-Iran relations fall more into diplomatic channels, we can start addressing the other concerns as well. And... uh, Look, if you're if you're Israel, if you're a country uh, that Iran has still said should not exist on the face of the earth, and that you know you will one day be wiped out, or if you're somebody who cares about Israeli interests as a number of U.S. politicians do, uh, then the prospect of a thaw in U.S.-Iran relations is not a positive thing, right? You actually want Iran to be as ostracized as excluded as possible. Uh, And so it it was this interesting thing where Obama was very much saying what you just said, Hamsini. He was saying that we can't look, we have to limit the deal, right? We we have to stick to what is actually possible to find an agreement on. This is very standard negotiating practice. We will limit our negotiation to the issues where we think agreement is possible. The other stuff will kick down the road. And this is what he did. But if you know if you're one of the critics and certainly if you're trump then you're saying no the stuff that you're kicking down the road is equally or more important we can't stop with just okay no nuclear breakout or nuclear breakout postponed the rest of it has to follow as well sure so okay so this was the stand that obama took uh, and he signed the treaty right so was he able to ratify it did all of that happen mm, no but it's a really important but Uh, So, quick capsule on US law when it comes to international relations, right? The president has the ability to negotiate and sign any agreement that he or she sees fit. This is entirely within their power. However, it does not become US law, like whatever the content of that treaty is, does not become part of US law 
unless the treaty is ratified by the Senate, which is the upper house of the U.S. Congress. So Obama was able to conclude the deal. The Senate did not ratify it. Okay. So, uh, Amaya, before we get back to what Trump is trying to do now, can you sort of help us understand what Iran was thinking at this point? So, when they were signing the deal, that was a time when they had been under sanctions for a long time. So, that was affecting their trade, their economic growth, their sort of links with the rest of the world. And so, I'm guessing they made some sort of a calculation and said, okay, we let go of the nukes. Uh, What do you think? their thinking was then and what are they sort of thinking of now hey so the the caveat is that i'm a lot more familiar with u.s politics than i am with iranian politics in part of because course. one is a more open society than the other uh, right in general the world is more clued into american politics than iranian politics yes especially on something esoteric like this exactly uh But look, what happened in 2013 was that Hassan Rouhani was elected in Iran, right? Uh, And Hassan Rouhani is widely known as a moderate in Iranian politics. He's widely known as a reformer. Uh, He is widely known as being pro-diplomacy. So the hard line in Iranian politics is uh, the United States is the great Satan. Israel is the little Satan. We will fight and destroy both of them, right? Right. the moderate line is much more like, can you see where that has gotten us in the past 40 years? Like, can we confront reality? Reality is that our economy is in shambles and we need to reestablish connections with the US and with the world. Uh, Israel is a much more emotive and difficult topic, but we can hive it off to the side and we can actually try and work out some more, uh, at least more of a working relationship than we currently have, where we are isolated. And, you know, read what you will into the fact that Rouhani won the election, right? So he certainly read it as, I have a mandate to go and try and make this deal. Uh, and so, I mean, the the government headed by Rouhani, which is still the government, uh, basically said, our priority is economic development and we need to be connected to the world economy for that to work, for which we need sanctions to be relaxed. And so we will negotiate, you know, as shrewdly and as well as we can to get sanctions relief. And yeah, uh, giving up the nuclear program is an acceptable trade-off for that. All right. Thanks for this, Amir. We'll just take a short break and get back after this. Every week comes a show where three people come together to tell you about stuff they like. A movie, a TV show, a book, and other stuff. Tune in every Monday on the IVM Podcast app to IVM Likes. Batman approves this message. Thank you, Batman. Welcome back to the Pragati Podcast. Today in the studio, we're talking to Ameya Nayak about the Iran nuclear deal and maybe later the North Korean nuclear deal. Ameya, we were talking about um, the current president, Donald Trump, uh, backing out of the current Iran nuclear deal, right? Uh, First, how would this work on sanctions? Second, 
I thought this was not only a U.S. measure, but something that goes up right to the U.N., right? So how does all of that work, um, particularly if Obama is someone who really wanted this deal to go through? Hey, those are great questions. Uh, Two or three different parts, right? Uh, One, when it comes to U.S. law, the sanctions are being imposed by the U.S. Congress. So if the deal, as we said, it wasn't ratified, right? If the deal had been ratified then by definition, it would have overridden the existing sanctions. That didn't happen. And so instead of that, you get something called a waiver mechanism, uh, where the president can say, I believe that imposing these sanctions would be against the national interest. And so even though by law, I am required to impose them, I am going to give a special case waiver in this case, And the thing is, this is an ongoing and regular process, right? Like it comes back every three months or every six months. And so this is what Obama did. On the domestic front, he basically certified to the U.S. Congress that the deal is in the U.S. national interest. And then based on that certification, Congress came back to him and said, well, if it's in U.S. national interest, do you want to waive the sanctions? And he said, yes. Right. And he had to keep doing this again and again, every three months, every three months, every three months. Uh, Trump last October said, I'm not going to certify it's a national interest. And he said, that's because I think that we need a better deal. So now Congress and also Iranian government and also EU and UN and whoever else cares, you know, get cracking, show me a better deal. If you can do that, then maybe I'll certify. Obviously, nothing of the sort happened. Uh, The Iranians were like, boss, we have a deal. We're going to stick with it. Uh, I don't know if anybody in US government was trying to negotiate this within quotes better deal, but at any rate, they didn't get it. And so now Trump has refused to waive the sanctions. Right. And he's again trying to push this on Congress and being like, if Congress thinks that the deal is great and they should keep with it, uh, they can pass a law that takes away the sanctions. But I'm not going to give a waiver. Now it's in Congress's court. So this is this is intra US and like U.S. government. Uh, Second, on the sanctions themselves, uh, the stuff that's really effective, like the stuff that's really hit the Iranian economy hard is actually not the primary sanctions, which is like the U.S. government saying that U.S. or U.S. entities will not trade with Iran, right? The thing that hits really hard is what is considered is what's called secondary sanctions, which is that the U.S. will also impose penalties on anybody else who trades with Iran. So if you violate U.S. sanctions on Iran, you are also subject to sanctions. And the the place where this starts becoming really powerful is that the dollar is still the global reserve currency and that a whole lot of people who want to do business with Iran also want to do business in the U.S. or are actually listed on the New York Stock Exchange or have like significant bank accounts and holdings in U.S. banks. Or even if they don't have them in U.S. banks, when they want to transact with other people, they have to transact through U.S. banks. And so if if the U.S. Treasury, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact term, I think it's a designated entity. If the U.S. Treasury says that you are a designated entity under like the relevant Iran sanction laws, your access to the global financial system can just vanish, right? Um, 
and this shows up in pretty much every aspect of like uh anything to do with the financial system so if you're looking to transfer money obviously it won't work uh if you're looking to get insurance the person who has to insure you has to wonder about whether they can actually work the deal in a way that doesn't expose it to us sanctions if you are somebody who is trading with iran go one step further and this actually happened with shipping and aviation there are only two or three big companies in the world that actually do what's called reinsurance which is they take over liabilities from insurers and say if you have to do two large a payout we'll insure you against that possibility so reinsurance was really hard to get if there was an iran connection because the two or three big companies in question were like we really don't want to take on this risk because we get so much business from the us um uh, so this is also important because now when trump has said i'm not going to waive the sanctions uh the other countries involved china russia the eu countries can all say uh we are actually still bound by the deal and so we are going to order our companies in keeping with our international law obligation under this deal to continue carrying out this trade and in theory under a different precedent that means that the secondary sanctions can't be applied to those companies trump being trump might be like no even then i'm going to apply the secondary sanctions to you it hasn't come to that yet but that's that's sort of the next showdown ahead yeah given that trump is already erecting trade barriers and putting tariffs on chinese imports and other things uh, you know it feels like he may not be reluctant to impose secondary uh, sanctions on say chinese companies which are operating with iran right so it's always a possibility uh but uh, amaya uh, from what i understand rather vaguely uh, there were a few india exceptions to this right so india and iran have a long history uh, even in the 20th century of uh, cordial relations um and i think we did buy some oil from them even during the sanctions period i remember some talk of a calcutta bank account that iran had with rupees and they were doing a few things right so tell us about in general what's the deal with iran india relations and how they might get affected uh, by new sanctions once more uh so again there are two channels right one is the direct india iran one the other is that india and iran are both un member states okay right i'll quickly run through the second one which is that uh, this deal the jcpoa right was actually endorsed by a un security council resolution that was also passed in 2015 and uh, look security council resolutions can use a range of language right they can be like we encourage we call for we endorse we applaud or they can be like we decide we demand we mandate which is like the strongest language they can use so the the key clauses in this resolution is the security council resolution 2231 of 2015 the key clauses actually use decide which technically means that every country that is a un member which is every country uh has to abide by these sanction relief terms and this is why i keep saying that you know trump is trying to renege but it's not that easy because the us is also a member of the un and this resolution was incredibly cleverly designed like it was designed in a way that even though the us has a veto in the security council 
as does Russia, as does China. The operation of the deal, if Iran is in compliance and they will continue getting the relief, if they stop being in compliance, then they will face sanctions again. These two things were made veto-proof, right? They made them automatic and only if a country wanted to stop that from coming, would it be able to veto a resolution. So this, is, this gets complicated, but the point is that Obama really, really waterproofed the implementation of this deal by going through the UN Security Council. And so one option for India is just to say, hey, we're a UN member state. We're bound by this resolution. The resolution says as long as Iran is certified to be in compliance, we have to continue acting. And so India can do the same thing that I was saying the EU can do, right? We can tell ONGC or HPCL or whoever, you continue doing your deals with Iran and this is something that you're ordered by the government because we are bound by this resolution. But the second part of your question is this Calcutta bank account and all that, uh, is that India and Iran started reaching a separate arrangement where they said to limit our exposure to this dollar-linked secondary sanctions, India can pay some portion of its oil bills to Iran in rupees. And that can be done through an Indian bank. And if it's a government-run Indian bank, then, you know, not really an exposure necessarily to uh, the US because it's harder to impose those sanctions on sovereign entities. All right. So, so now with Iran sanctions, uh, with the US maybe trying to impose sanctions on Iran again, it does sort of put a few other India-Iran projects in question, right? So, um, I also want to point out here that, you know, I think Iran is the big blind spot that the United States has, right? And the US is happy to deal with a country like Pakistan, which is an errant state, which is also exporting terror in the neighborhood, undermining American foreign policy goals and so on. However, they're still okay trying to work with Pakistan, uh, even if that relationship is on and off. But there, there seems to be this uh, sort of a block in the minds of a lot of American policymakers in trying to uh, work with Iran. And I think what Obama did was a, a great break from that. Uh, so, so that was just a comment. But coming back to India, I think we are now interested uh, in the Chabaha port project. And that's also critical, I think, to American foreign policy objectives in Afghanistan because it provides an alternate route into this landlocked continent uh, instead of having to rely on uh, Pakistan and this entire um, Khyber Pass, which is this wonderful, uh, you know, uh, rent-seeking where even in the past, I think there were goons with guns on top of the hills on the Khyber Pass who would seek rent from trade. And you see Pakistan doing that today too. So do you see that if Trump moves ahead with this, Chabahar port deal might be in the threat and a few other things might also be under threat? The Prime Minister met with Nikki Haley last month, right, when she was visiting uh, this is the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And uh, one of the things that came out of their meeting, like if you look at the readout of the meeting, then Nikki Haley did assure uh, Prime Minister Modi that the U.S. will continue to support development at Chabahar. Chabahar is a, is a special case. If they have to carve out exceptions for it, they will. I mean... That's, I guess that's reason for optimism, 
like talk is cheap we'll have to see the actual exceptions be made but at least on paper they've said no we recognize that chabhar is important now the related question is you know uh, how deftly can india use this leverage and be like hey the main reason we're building chabhar is oil and so if you mess with our oil flow from iran then our primary interest in this port is is a, is much reduced uh good luck trying to get iran to let you the united states build it good luck trying to get iran to let you the united states send stuff through it even if somebody else has built it and by the way guess who's going to build it if we get out the chinese so you know it's it's not like india has no cards to play here but at the same time i've also been reading news stories saying that uh, the petroleum minister the oil and natural gas minister has been going to refineries in india and saying like prepare contingency plans for if you do not have what you're currently getting from iran like figure out where you would get it from figure out what you need to change to work with that different composition of crude uh, so i mean too early to say or too close to say right now right but i think that if india really said we want to make sure that we are able to carve out a channel for iranian oil imports we definitely have the ability to do that yeah and it's also about the fact that we've done this before right uh, the last time that the sanctions were imposed on uh, by the us uh, india has been has figured out the mechanisms that it will need uh, in case sanctions were imposed again so to be clear we haven't bypassed sanctions right that's that's not really the indian way in foreign policy we create exceptions that are like internationally recognized and accepted so like it's it's very important to us reputationally to be seen as dealing above the table um and so i mean that's what i was getting at i don't think that india should either would or should try to cheat these sanctions but i i don't think that a a global comprehensive sanctions regime on iran like there existed before 2015 is a is a guaranteed or a done thing and that there are both in terms of india us relationships and in terms of other countries that are actually on the side of continuing iranian sanctions relief there's significant leverage to be tapped into on the other hand you have the singular personality of trump and and the fact that you know uh if he decides that he will give up all other benefits but insist that everybody comply with iran sanctions then then we'll have to take a much harder call uh amea i just wanted uh, to say that what you were saying about how india was approaching its foreign policy is rather reminiscent of how it generally approaches foreign policy especially when dealing with the middle east where we seem to have good relations with most actors and prefer not to rub anyone the wrong way be it saudi arabia israel iran india sort of seems to have a nice uh, set of ties with all of them uh, having said that i thought there was a missed opportunity when uh, the obama administration struck the deal with iran where i think india could have played that role of being a peacemaker uh, and a negotiator uh, instead i think we were caught on the back foot entirely uh i mean i broadly speaking i think you're right i'm more skeptical than you about how much of an opportunity existed uh 
for I guess at least two reasons. Uh, one is that relative to the kind of both money and diplomatic firepower that was represented at the table by the you know the combined weight of the EU, the US, uh, Russia, and China. Indian involvement in Iran is is really small potatoes, right? Uh, it's a big deal to us, but on a global scale, it's not all that much. And so I'm like, I'm not sure how much direct leverage we had there. Uh, and like the reputational leverage from being on good terms with everyone, uh, I think is a very important thing for India to maintain. Uh, but I feel like it's much more effective as a buffer against upsetting relationships than it is in getting people to do things. Right. Like it's it's more effective in the negative than it is in the positive. Uh, and the second reason is, again, China was part of this, right? Like China was part of the entire negotiating process, even if they didn't take a front seat. Uh, so I don't know how they would have reacted to uh, India demanding a more active role or India act, even taking a more active role. All right. Thank you so much for this, Amir, particularly because when we're talking about the Iran nuclear deal, often we dismiss sanctions as this single entity and I think what you've done is walked us through the nuts and bolts of uh, diplomacy and sanctions when we're talking about Iran. Thank you for staying with us till the end. Don't miss the second part of this discussion, which will continue in the next episode of the Pragati Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for Ameya and the hosts, write in to podcast.thinkpragati.com and we will try to answer them on a future episode. Get over to thinkpragati.com to read smart views on India and the world. And if you're not a subscriber to the Pragati Podcast, sign up today. We are there everywhere. Did I just catch you on your way to work? Or did you end up pulling an all-nighter? Let me guess. You have a packed schedule for the day, the week, and probably the month and the year. That's a lot for your mind to handle, don't you think? This buzzing chaos also brings tons of negative thoughts. Am I right? Try spinning that bottle in a positive direction with me, Chetna, on the Positively Unlimited podcast, every Monday on IBM Podcasts. It's time to change your life one alphabet at a time. Hello there, my name is Naveen Narona and as a gay person in India, I get asked a lot of stupid questions. A beta, is it LGBT or eligibility? How do two men procreate? Bro is grinder better than Tinder award. We answer all these questions and much more on my podcast, Keeping It Queer, where I talk to individuals from the LGBT community in India and learn about their personal stories. Catch all the episodes on the IBM podcast app or any other podcasting app you like. Till then, keep it queer.